right, Hebrews 1. Stand with me for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to tell you, we're going to make it through three verses this morning. Okay, three. All right, so you won't be standing long. I know you just were standing. All right, Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the, by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated this morning. Okay, so why, why Hebrews? Um, as we're, we're setting up this series uh, this morning, um, we felt really strongly as elders and as I kind of surveyed, obviously there's 66 books in the Bible, picking any of them, you can't go wrong, okay? But here is what our prayer is for the book of Hebrews as we journey through it, um, is I want us together to see Jesus and all his glory clearly. Why Hebrews? Because in the book of Hebrews, Jesus, it is one of the books that Jesus is on display most vividly, in, in my opinion, all right? As I've read it, as I've unpacked it, as now I've, I've been studying it, it is one of those books that Jesus is most clearly and vividly seen and explained. It's beautiful language. It's, it's deep language. It's thoughtful language. It's practical language. And the reason I say I want us to see Jesus clearly in this is because when we, if we, if the Lord would allow us to individually and corporately see Jesus clearly, we'll never be the same. You hear me? If we see Jesus, if we get the vision of Jesus from the book of Hebrews as we journey through it for however long, probably a year plus, okay? I'm just going to tell you that, all right? For however long we go through the book of Hebrews, if we, if we get to see Jesus clearly, if the Lord would allow that, It'll ruin us. You think about the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. We're pretty familiar with that, that, that passage, right? Where, where Isaiah, he, he sees God's glory, right? In the temple. And what's it say? He actually just sees his, his, his robe filling the temple. Just like, it's, it's like almost like this, this afterbirth. He sees his robe. And you know what it does to Isaiah? It does what I just described. It, it ruins him. He fall, he's like, whoa, I'm unworthy. You remember that, like that scene where he's just like, I can't, Lord, whatever you've asked me to do as a prophet of yours, like I I can't do it because of how holy you are, how other, how glorious you are. And there's something about the book of Hebrews that puts that kind of glory, that kind of holiness, that kind of magnitude of who Jesus is on full display. And if we'll let the spirit do a work in our hearts, it'll ruin us like the glory, the glimpse of glory that Isaiah got It'll ruin us to everything else. And so we've actually subtitled this series, Jesus is Better. That when you see Jesus in his full glory and in his full weight for truly who the Bible says he is, not a caricature of him, right? Not, not, not a figment of our imaginations or, or, or the Jesus where we go, I think Jesus is this or uh, Jesus to me is this. But no, the Jesus of the Bible is this. Here's what will be a resounding anthem from our church. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anything else. Jesus is better than what this world is offering. Jesus is better than this or that or this. Jesus is better. 
Jesus is greater. He's greater than the struggle I'm walking through. He's greater than the success I'm feeling or sensing. Jesus is better. How powerful will it be if there's a community like ours that the anthem that is rolling off of our lips and from our lives is this, that Jesus is better. And when we're confronted with things as we wade through culture and we walk in the world, we go into our workplaces or our schools or our neighborhoods, that what's flowing off of our lives and our lips is this, Jesus is better. He's better. And that's the theme. Listen to me. That's the theme woven throughout the book of Hebrews. So if you're taking notes, that's the theme of the whole book. But I know some of you went in a little context here on Hebrews, like, who wrote the book, Kyle? Who wrote Hebrews? Some of you are laughing because we don't know. We don't know. We don't know who wrote the book. Or if you want the sarcastic answer, the Holy Spirit wrote the book of Hebrews, right? God wrote the book of Hebrews. That's really what is most important, right? But there are options. Paul, who wrote a large portion of our New Testament. Apollos, who we looked at in Acts. Barnabas, an option. That'd be interesting, right? Kind of encouragement. Priscilla. Ooh, want to get some controversy? <laughs> ah, Priscilla could have written it. Or Luke. Far off, distant chance. Probably not Luke, but some scholars believe it was Luke. But again, the most important thing is this. God wrote Hebrews. The Holy Spirit is the one who inspired an apostle to write this letter that would be read years and years ago, but still applicable to us here at the Parks Church today. And so the book begins, as I just read, by comparing the way God spoke and the way he speaks today. The way he spoke in the Old Testament versus how he speaks now. And so if you have your Bibles, again, if you're new, this is probably the best way to do this is to have them open. I'm just going to go verse by verse through them. If you have notes, you can write at the top of it, God speaks. God speaks. And we'll spend really a long time in Hebrews looking at how God speaks and the way in which God speaks. But today we'll look at these two areas, the way that God did speak and the way God speaks now. So Frederick II um, was an emperor of Germany through 1196 to 1250. We know very little about Frederick II, except we know that he decided to embark on a very strange and cruel experiment. And what Frederick II wanted to find out was this. What language would children speak if no one ever spoke to them? He thought maybe they would speak Hebrew because he, he believed that was the oldest language. Or maybe they would speak Latin or Arabic or Greek. Or maybe they would speak the language of their parents' origin. He decided to do this. There was a large number of orphans in foster care in Germany at that time. He decided to do this um, with a group of those orphans and those foster children. He ordered the nannies uh, to not speak to the children at all. Can you imagine that? No speaking. And the result of this experiment was astonishing. None of these kids spoke Hebrew or Greek or Latin or any other language for that matter. And the reason that is, is because all of the children died. Because they couldn't live without being spoken to. 
And I want to submit to you, neither can we. You see, we take for granted all the ways in which speech is part of our lives. And even if this is sign language or you, you personally can't speak audibly, there's speech and communication happening all around you. And for most of us, it's happening from us as well. You see, we need speech to understand who we are. We fulfill social needs through speech. We receive affirmation and acceptance. We fulfill practical needs, don't we, through, through speech, right? We tell the doctor that where the pain is or the mechanic how to fix it or the barber exactly how much to take off or not take off. You see, we could say that the difference between a healthy marriage or family or organization is what? Speech, communication. You see, the book of Hebrews, while we may not know the exact author of it, we believe we're fairly confident in whom the book of Hebrews was written to. It was written to a group of Jewish Christians in Rome. And this group of Jewish Christians, these Hebrews, their lives have been turned upside down. Many of them at this stage and this point, they have lost property and wealth and friendships and family all because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And now, like they've lost that when this letter comes to them. And now what looms for them is deeper persecution. You say, Kyle, how do you know that? The book of Hebrews. Look at this, Jim, we have Hebrews chapter 10. It says, but recall the former days, so days, of, days back, after you were enlightened and you endured hard, a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. A better possession. Uh, just a side note here. He's not talking about a tangible possession, by the way. One that's abiding one that's deeper than what we have tangibly. But here the writer of Hebrews is alluding to the affliction, the persecution, what they've faced, the property that's been taken from them, but yet the resilience they had. Scholar William Lane says that this persecution that's written about in Hebrews 10 most likely is persecution that began around A.D. 49, the persecution of Christians under a Roman emperor called Claudius. And we can be clear what Claudius was doing because there's actually a Roman writer in the early 2nd century that prepared biographies of the Roman emperors. And get this, that in his biography of Claudius, he mentions an incident of social disturbance in Rome. And this is what he quotes, a 2nd century scholar, Roman scholar. There were riots in the Jewish quarter at the instigation of Christus, or Christus. As a result, Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. That's what they were facing. So these Jews, these Christian Jews, were facing these riots and these, these battles over Christus. Now, this is a little bit different spelling, but most believe that this is referring to Christ. What's the reason for the riots? What's the reason for these, these kind of things being stirred up and unsettled? Christ. They were proclaiming him as the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the Christ. Now, speed up, okay? Fifteen years later, approximately, the writer of Hebrews sits down to write to his friends, to write to the people, the gathering that is there in Rome. 
Because what is on the horizon for them is not just taking of their tangible goods. It's not just putting them in prison or, or, or pushing them out or losing friends and, and, and family. What is on the horizon for them is losing their physical lives. We know that. They didn't know that. They were preparing for that. You see, as Christians, we have to understand we don't know what lies on the horizon of our lives next. Culturally speaking, individually speaking, corporately speaking, we don't know what lies on the horizon. And one of the things that I'm encouraged by here in Hebrews is that that the writer is well aware of what they have faced, but he is preparing them for what is ahead, inevitably ahead, that you're not just going to get things taken from you. Your very life is going to be demanded from you for the cause and name of Christ. And I think one of the ways in which, and and I I would lump us even into this category, the church has not set disciples or Christ followers up well, is by not preparing us for true suffering. Not preparing us for true trials and true tribulations. You see, we talk a lot about the cost of discipleship, right? We talk a lot about the cost of discipleship on time and talents and treasure. What about the true cost of discipleship? Our very lives. What happens when that's demanded of us? What happens when the true waves of life slam against the boat of our lives and it begins to rock? You see, if there is a shallow foundation there, if there is a a shallow, unrooted faith there, what happens? The Bible tells us what happens. It gets tossed to and fro. And what I love about Hebrews is it says this. Listen, we're going to go deep. We're going to go very deep to drive the roots of your life very deep in Christ so that when the waves of this life inevitably come, when the trials and the persecutions, when the culture is shifting like it always is, it always has been. That's not not anything new. You know that, right? It's not like a new thing like, whoa, this just happened in 2020. No, it's been going on since the beginning. And the work of true discipleship is this, to dig our roots deep. So when those things come, we stand. Not on our own strength, but in Christ. And so that's what's taking place here in Hebrews. He's going, these things have happened to you, but yet you've maintained the faith. You've kept the faith. But it's not going to get better. It's actually going to grow worse. And we know that 15 years later, from 8049 to 8064, a man by the name of Nero comes. In Rome, and you know the story, most of you, he burns Rome to the ground and throws most Christians in jail. And it was really easy. (laughs) I say that tongue-in-cheek. It was really easy for Christians to get out of jail in Rome. You know how Christians got out of jail under Nero? They had to declare one thing. Caesar Curios. Caesar is Lord. You can go free. But as Christians, what do we declare? Not Caesar is Lord. Jesus is Lord. So we know in that time, many Christians lost their lives. There were many martyrs. And so I think here, as we are at the beginning gates of Hebrew, Hebrews, these Jewish Christians are asking some really good questions on that kind of backdrop. God, where are you? God, what, 
What are you doing? You see, they, like Frederick's foster children, they're as good as dead if God doesn't speak. They're going, God, we need you to speak. And so the writer of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, sends this letter to the church in Rome. This church that was probably pretty small, that was gathering in pockets of 15 or 20 throughout the area. So imagine those small pockets of Christians gathering in Rome, not gathering loudly, but gathering on the Sabbath, probably lighting a candle in the catacombs of Rome, singing quiet songs and praying to God, wondering what's going to happen to them next. Wondering, God, 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 where are you? We've pledged our allegiance to you and you alone. And then just imagine this. Someone steps forward saying, we've, we've gotten a letter. We've gotten a letter. Come around. Come around. And the first thing off of that reader's lips to that small church, that persecuted church of Jewish Christians in Rome is this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Can you imagine the hope that would have brought to them? Our God's not silent. Our God is speaking They come face to face here through the letter of Hebrews with a God who speaks. Do you understand that we serve a God, Yahweh, the one true God, who speaks to his people? That our God listens, yes, he knows the needs of his people, but here's what is almost even more powerful than that, is that he speaks to his people. Why does God speak to his people? Why does our God speak? Here's why. Because he wants us to know him. Our God wants to be known, so he speaks. He wants to communicate himself to us. He wants us to realize that he is not an idea, but he is a person who wants to reveal himself so we can know him. He wants to speak to us so that we might live. God's speech, God's word brings life. We need God to speak. And I would argue that God's speech is the single most important attribute about him, right? Because how would we ever know any other attribute about God unless he what? Speaks. Because here's what we see time and time and time again in the Bible. God speaking, and and, and write these down. It's going to be real easy for you to remember. Genesis 1, John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, and now Hebrews chapter 1. God's speech, God speaking always brings about these three things, power, life, and wisdom. You'll see that throughout Hebrews. You're going to see that as we go through even those passages this morning. But the question that the Hebrews, the beginning of Hebrews is is really answering is this. How does God speak? How does he speak? Well, Um, Hebrews begins with God speaking through the prophets. But is there a way before that that God speaks? Let's take a look at Psalm 19. Jim, if you'll put Psalm 19 up. 
to the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun. Do you get all the speech language in that? Do you get all the ways in which God is speaking? So what is it saying? How does God speak? Well, the first way God speaks is through the universe that he created. Genesis 1. And here's what is absolutely incredible about our God's speech. Our God's speech is literally his speech or his word is the raw material. Right? You know, we as the created beings, we have to use things to create things. He literally speaks and they exist. He says water and water is formed. He says light and light is formed. He says uh, human and humans are formed, right? Like it's, it's his raw material. It's his voice. And so by him creating nature in Genesis chapter one and him creating all things, literally nature, the universe resound with the speech of God declaring who he is. That's what Psalm 19 is, is describing to us. And for some of you, are like, yeah, I, I feel that. I sense that. Like, I, I go outside and just kind of nature. I connect with God. I, see, I sense God. I, I, I sense that there is a, a, a bigger creator out there. Look what Job says. Isn't that Job? Behold, these, meaning creation. Okay, let's track with this. These are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him? But the thunder of his power, who can understand it? So creation, it's kind of the outskirts, if you will, of God's communication to us, okay? And this is what Job is alluding to. Now, Job also says, like, if God really let the ponies run, all right? If he fully just disclosed, this is who I am, and he really begins to speak in power. He goes, first off, you can't understand it, and you will never be able to stand it. You'd fall over dead in an instant. Like, that's the power of God. And he goes, so these, the nature, the universe, is kind of God's outskirts, Now I want to go into Hebrews 1, because God doesn't just leave kind of this this vague outskirts of communication. He brings it closer. He goes, I'm going to communicate even more specific with my people, and here's how I'm going to do it, through the prophets. And so that's where we pick up here in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God speaks through the prophets, and it says, in many times and in many ways. I love that, right? It wasn't just this one shot wonder go, hey, listen, I said it once, I sent a prophet and you should have got it. But like we have a pretty thick Old Testament, don't we? Right? Of God communicating to his people through many prophets. Many times there was a lot of speaking from God to his people through prophets. And listen, I'm thankful for that. Think even about a, a close relationship. Maybe for those of you who are married, the closest relationship to you, was it... Now, some of you are going to go, it was after the first conversation. It wasn't after the first conversation that you understood that person, right, fully and most deeply, probably where you even fell in love with that person if it's your spouse, right? It was after 25,000 conversations, right? right? I've been married 14 years now, right? There are still conversations and communication and speech that goes forth just to go, man, I, I'm learning you better and more deeply, this is the same with the heart of our God. And in many ways, he's communicating. But not, or in many times, he's communicating. But it also says in many ways. 
God doesn't just communicate through the prophets in one way, but there are many ways. Look at your Old Testament, right? How does God reveal himself? Through visions and dreams, messages through angels, audible voices, whispering out of whirlwinds. He writes on walls. He appears in burning bushes. He writes worship songs in the Psalms. He puts messages in the mouth of donkeys. He uses all these different ways, right? All these different ways over and over. God is communicating. He's speaking who he is to his people. Um, how many of you ever read uh, Gary Chapman, Five Love Languages, right? I don't know if there are only five, okay? There are probably many more than that. But Gary kind of narrowed it down to five, and so we'll trust Gary on this one, okay? Um, right, words of affirmation, physical touch, quality time, quantity time, uh, gifts. I just did that on the fly, so thankfully I got five there. Um, but I was thinking about this in the way, in many ways that God communicates or speaks to his people, And he doesn't just speak one way. And in fact, God, it was even thinking just through Gary's five, if you will. God does all of those, right? Words of affirmation. Physical touch? What did God Read your Old Testament. And even, even in the New Testament, the way in which God speaks or God uses people, right? The laying on of hands, right? And all these different ways. In many ways, God, in his faithfulness and his goodness, was disclosing who he was to his people. But there's a verse here in verse 2, or there's a word here in verse 2 that's a transition. Look at it. But. Long ago, verse 1 says, many times in many ways God spoke through his prophets. But. To us. He's going, Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians. But to us, God speaks How? By his son. So there is now, if you will, a new way in which God speaks. Not through the prophets of old, but through his son. And literally the translation here, it says by his son, at least in my Bible, it says by his son. The literal translation of that is in son. That's bad English. That's good theology. Okay. It literally says in son, God has spoken to us. And so hear me, the previous prophets had been given the word of God. Jesus himself was the word of God. This is John 1, chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So the prophets were given the word of God. Jesus himself is what? God. He was the living God. And it says in these last days, well, When you see the word last days, what needs to trigger is this idea, final act. You could divide things in three acts. You could have um, creation, fall, Israel, and Jesus, just really simply, right? And so when it's talking about the final days, it's talking about the final revelation of God, the final word of God, which is spoken in Jesus. And this is going to be really important. Hear me. When you're confronted with someone who says that there is revelation ongoing, Right? That there is revelation past the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? Maybe somebody named Joseph Smith or Muhammad. What we as Christians would say is no, the last revelation period was Jesus. In these last days, this is the final act. You say, Kyle, wait a minute. What about the apostles? Didn't they write after Jesus? You're right, but they weren't prophets, they were witnesses, and they didn't write anything new. 
They were just clarifying and reporting Jesus. That's what the work of the apostles were doing. And so then the writer of Hebrews builds out, if you will, the resume of Jesus, right? This final spoken word he builds out. He says, this is who he is. He appointed the heir of all things. Who's the heir of all things? Not the prophets, not, 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 not anything in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is the heir of all things, meaning heir, everything flows to him. Everything was for him and given to him. In verse three, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Now, let's think about this. Go back to Genesis 1, because we just, we're just going to read. It says that whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the whole world. So was Jesus there when the world was created in Genesis chapter 1? Absolutely, Right? We believe in something called the Trinity, right? One God, three distinct persons, all there at Genesis 1. And then go down a little bit further. It says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So we have this creator God, right? Jesus, who was there, created all things. Okay, also a little side note. When someone knocks on your door and says that Jesus was the first of all created beings, that's false. He was there in the beginning. He created all things. He was not created, okay? And so it says that he holds everything together by the word of his power. Now, I kind of wrestled with that last phrase, the word of his power. Shouldn't it be the power of his word? Doesn't that make most sense to you? Like the power of his word is what holds everything together? And I read one commentator that I think hits it right on the head with being able to describe this, how we understand it, is that, that, that there is a word, okay? Maybe if, you, if you're a, a, a musician or you're a singer, this might make a little bit more sense. There is a note, if you will, that Jesus is holding out that sustains his power, all right? And this is what Colossians would talk about, that everything, he holds everything together. Like he's the glue. There's this note, there's this word of power that is holding everything together. And until Jesus lets that note go, everything is under his control and within his sovereignty. All right? Does that make sense? Like it's big, I know Hebrews is a little bit deep. All right? But for whatever reason, that note, that, that, that word of power is still going forth right now through Jesus, Hebrews tells us. So his speech is continual. It's constant, right? Imagine you and I, right? We can't hold out a note forever. What do we need? We need a breath, right? We need to breathe. Jesus doesn't have that problem, okay? He will hold that word for as long as he sees fit until the end, the appointed time to which he has set. So listen, as Christians, we can be confident in that. Everything's held together by his word of power. Not just the power of his word, but the word of his power, and so that note's going forth even to this day. He's the God who created everything, right? And he holds it all in his hand. Does any other prophet have that on their resume? Right? You look at the Old Testament, you can scour the scriptures. No one else has that on their resume, right? Some of you are really proud that you built a deck in your backyard. You're like, look, I created this. Listen, he's got, Jesus has a whole other category of creator, okay? And not only is he creator, he's sustainer of that creation, and it says that he's the radiance of the glory of God. That literally Jesus is the visible image, the tangible bit of the incredible reality of who God is, right? 
It's not just like the, 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 the rays off of the sun so that we know what the sun is. No, he is literally God himself, but he is the visible radiance, the, the, the beautiful part of who God is, the tangible part that we can see with our eyes, that people could touch with their hands. And then it takes it a step further here in Hebrews. He says he's the exact imprint of God's nature. And so the idea here was a signet ring. Right, that, that a king or a ruler would use to, to press into wax. And that would kind of be his sign or his symbol of what he decreed. And God is going, listen, my son is my exact imprint of what I declare and what I decree. Jesus himself says this in John 14, verse 9. He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You get that? It's this exact imprint. And so this up front, here's the point I want to make. Jesus was a fundamentally different type of message from God than what we saw in nature, what we see in nature, and what we saw in the prophets. A fundamentally different type of message. The prophets gave the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. But that's not just it. That Jesus also is a different kind of ministry than the prophets. So going on. And this is where we'll conclude. And so after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here is the different kind of ministry. You see the prophets and the priests. And if you read the Old Testament, you know there was a whole sacrificial system. And we're going to go through a lot of those systems as we journey through Hebrews. But in Jesus, what he is saying is what that system was pointing to, what that system um, pointed to in terms of just being a shadow. Jesus goes, I fulfilled that. The ministry of those priests, the ministry of those sacrifices that were made daily in the tabernacle, in the temple, time and time again. Jesus goes, listen, I'm the one who fulfills that. And so here's what's so powerful about that. You see, all of the prophets, what they would do is they would give instructions about what we can do to be reconciled to God. Jesus, on the other hand, did the work on our behalf. He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, meaning made purification for our sins. What do we need more than anything else in the planet? We need to be made right. We need to be purified from our sin. And Jesus is the one who does it. Jesus is the only one who accomplishes it. In the Old Testament, how was purification for sin made? Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And Jesus goes, listen, I'm going to be that sacrifice once and for all. I'm going to bring the purification that you need most. And then I love, I love this language at the end of, it's really the middle of verse 3. It says, after making purifications for sin, he did what? He sat down. So if you were able to go into the, back into the Old Testament, the way in which they made sacrifices, they would come in and offer them to the high priest. But one of the things you would notice, there are a lot of things going on there in the tabernacle. But one of the things that you notice that wouldn't be there would be a chair for you to sit down or for the high priest to sit down. In fact, in Hebrews 10, it says that the priest would continue to stand there making these sacrifices for all the people. Can you imagine the scene, what that altar would look like? Hundreds of thousands of sacrifices made. And here's what Hebrews says. No, Jesus making purification for our sin. What all of those things were meant to do, 
Jesus says, I'm ultimately going to complete. And then what does he do at the very end of it? He sits down. Why? It's finished. Say it louder. It's finished. It's finished. Can you imagine our brothers and sisters back in the Old Testament, right? Who would come and they would make sacrifice after sacrifice. They would come and they would stand. They would bring it and bring it over and over and over again, knowing that they were going to have to do it over and over and over again because they were looking forward to, they were looking forward to what? The day where the Messiah would come and he would make purification for their sin. And then he would sit down and go, it is finished. That's in your Bible, by the way, John 1930. Okay. It's finished. It's over. This is why Jesus is better because he is the one who can sit down and say, it's done. It's done. Right? Yeah. If anything's worthy of an amen, it's that. It's finished. Now, a little side note here. I've, I've, I've got four minutes. Um, Jesus sitting down. One of the most incredible passages for me when we studied the book of Acts was in Acts chapter 7. Stephen is about to be martyred. I think it's verses 55 and 56. Right? Jesus is seated. We just see it in Hebrews at the right hand of majesty. He's seated. Stephen is being stoned to death for faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, he just preached this incredible sermon, apologetic of Jesus and the gospel. And in Acts chapter 7, this Jesus who is seated, who finished the work for purification of our sins, Look at it in your own Bible. It says that when Stephen died, and when Stephen looked into heaven, what did he see? He saw Jesus, not seated, standing. I don't know what gets Jesus up off of that seat, but giving your life for the cause of Christ brings a welcome like no other. And these Hebrews, they were faced with that reality. That their lives were going to be called of them and demanded of them. But the reason they could live and be and meet with such confidence is because they knew that just as Hebrews 12 will describe that we'll get into in about a year and a half, that there's a blood that speaks a better word than all the lambs and all the sacrifices that were mere shadows of the lamb who was slain, who took a seat at the right hand of God the Father to say the work is complete. How they could live with such confidence because they were sure of Jesus, that he's better than life itself. And listen, how can we sing, this is how I fight my battles? This is not a... Posture to fight. What is this? This is a posture of surrender. Surrender. How can we say, this is how I fight my battles in a posture of vulnerability and and, and, and weakness and surrender? Because we go, our battle's been won. The victory's been won. Not in me. Not in how I fight, not in the weapons that I fashion, but in the one who sits at the right hand of the Father. The one who finished the work. The one who made purification for your sin and my sin. The one that said, it is done. It's over. The victory is won. And yes, this, this life will have battles. It will have losses. It will have trials and tribulations. 
But be confident in one thing, and that's the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, um, God, thank you for speaking to us. God, thank you for your word that we have. God, this collection of your, ins- your spirit-inspired writings disclosing who you are, disclosing how you move and how you operate, disclosing how you save us and redeem us, disclosing the wisdom for our lives. God, thank you that you're not silent in our affliction, but in fact, in our trials and our tribulations, you tend to shout. Shout beautifully the finished work of your son. And so, Lord, I pray. Lord, we, we as a church don't know what's on the horizon. We don't know what's on the horizon of our lives. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we can be confident in you because your son has finished the work, the greatest, deepest work of purifying us from our sin, of saving us, of redeeming us, of giving us life. And so, Lord, I pray that that might fuel and light a fire in us, that we would live in light of that finished reality and hope. God, that we'd not cower, that we'd not waffle, that we'd not be tossed to and fro, but we would be confident as your people with whatever's ahead. Oh God, I pray for the book of Hebrews, that your spirit might use it to give us a clearer, a more solid, a more beautiful and powerful picture of Jesus than ever before. And God, I pray that that would ruin us, that that would ruin us, that our anthem this week, in fact, would be Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He's greater. And so, Lord, I love you. I thank you for this community who's willing to go on this deep journey of figuring out who you are and how we live for you. It's in your beautiful name we pray, Jesus. Amen.